0: Join me, Jacqueline Coley, on a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen, presented by Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that shape them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. We are almost at the end of the year, but not before we have another very special guest on this episode. Two special guests, as a matter of fact, because while my esteemed co-host Jacqueline Coley is super busy. When she's not jet-setting across the world, she's probably covering an award show like, I believe the Golden Globes are right around the corner. Is that right? The Golden Globes are right around the corner, so you know Jacqueline is going to be on hand. As I'm fond of saying, she's been to more award shows than Dom Perignon. She's the best in the biz, so while she's covering that, we have... I'm such a fan of her. We've gotten to work together at festivals, at events here at Rotten Tomatoes. You know her from her own creation, Pay or Wait. That's how you find her on social media. The one, the only, representing all of Georgia, Sharonda Williams is back with us. Hello, Sharonda, and a pleasant day to you.
0: Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Happy to be in your presence, Mark.
2: I mean, look, its it's been too long. It's been just about a pandemic since we last saw each other. But we're here on a worthy cause because we have our very special guest, Jay Ellis, who's going to be talking uh, about Man on Fire with us. Now, you all know Jay from Insecure. It's about to wrap up their entire series run, which has just been start to finish a marvelous endeavor from co-creators Issa Rae and Larry Whitmore. Jay Ellis obviously plays Lawrence, and we'll talk about the many arcs of his character, the many ups and downs of that relationship. We're also going to talk about Man on Fire, Sharonda, because it's 38% rotten on the tomato meter and I had to like I did one of those cartoon like wipe my eyes make sure I'm looking at the right score this is such a celebrated beloved action movie directed by Tony Scott starring Denzel Washington its audience score is 89% fresh which sounds accurate 38% on the tomato meter it feels like a crime and I feel like we're both on the same page but before we go any further into our feelings on man on fire I now have the distinct honor of setting you up to give us the synopsis of Man on Fire. Sharonda, have at it.
0: All right. So Man on Fire, okay? Man on Fire, a.k.a. Lesson in Bad Parenting. (laughs) This movie takes place in Mexico City, where we find Denzel's character. We're going to call him Creasy. He's a former CIA operative, who is just, I mean, you can tell that he's a bad man who's done very bad things, That we don't speak of but we just know that we should be scared of him and essentially he comes into contact with a young girl who is played by dakota fanning who literally ate every scene up that she was in in this movie and they form a friendship that quickly gets turned upside down when her character gets kidnapped and presumably killed spoiler alert but you guys Mm. should have watched this I know. Right. And essentially, we then go on this very brutal journey of torturing, killing in many creative, I shall say, very creative ways as Creasy seeks vengeance on everyone who has had who has had something to do with her disappearance due to her raggedy trash dad, who is played by Mark Anthony. So, yeah.
2: That's Man on Fire. And I'm glad you you warned everybody. Obviously, we're going to be getting deep into the spoilers of Man on Fire. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to check it out. Come on back or just listen to us gush about it. And then you can go watch Man on Fire and see why... We I think both of us feel the same way about this movie, Sharana. Then we'll get Jay's thoughts on it, too. Directed by Tony Scott, who obviously did Top Gun. And I think Jay Ellis might have something to do with. He's probably seen that movie. I'm willing to bet. So research, you know, for another film. Yeah, maybe for another movie, you had to watch the... Fr- anyway, we'll talk with Jay about that. I don't want to give too much away right off the bat. But before Jay Ellis comes on in here, we are going to go to Producey Lucy, who's here. I'm not sure if Producer Lucy is available on camera. I don't know if she's actually... She told me that she didn't get a chance to rewatch Man on Fire. So I don't know if Producy Lucy wanted to come on camera and admit that she didn't do her job. Uh, Lucy, w- what possible defense could you levy that prevented you from watching Man on Fire this week?
1: You know what? I watched
0: Vanilla Sky for the first time instead.
2: <laughs> wow, you had an evening.
0: <laughs> a different Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on that, but yeah, no, I didn't get
3: to it. I saw it in the. I saw it. I think when it came out, maybe. Denzel. That's all I'm gonna
1: say. He's the best.
2: That's I love pretty him. Pretty much puts a period on everything, and the person we rely on to put a period on what the critics were saying. At the time of its release, Man on Fire came out in 2004. We were so young. Tim Ryan, our expert review curation manager here at Rotten Tomatoes, for our segment called Two Minutes with Tim.
1: Nobody's expecting vigilante thrillers to be warm and fuzzy. But critics were mixed as to whether Man on Fire's over-the-top action and frenetic style was elevated by Denzel Washington's assured performance or deflated by its excessive length and sometimes brutal violence. Man on Fire is rotten at 38% on the Tomatometer with 169 reviews, but it does have an 89% audience score. So what did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Destin Thompson of the Washington Post wrote that Man on Fire was a predictable, gruesome piece of business that tries to ennoble one-man vigilante justice with the star power of Denzel Washington. However, in a fresh review, Todd McCarthy of Variety called it one of the more absorbing and palatable entries in the rather disreputable Death Wish-style self-appointed vigilante subgenre. The Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus reads, Man on Fire starts out well, but goes over the top in the violent second half. So that's Man on Fire. Let's kick it over to Jacqueline for some blazing hot takes. Back to you. Wow, Tim. Well, Jacqueline's not here. Am I not known for my blazing hot
2: takes on this show? Am I just uh, am I the vanilla to Lucy Sky here? I feel like I have some pretty bold steps forward or backwards that I take on this show. But uh, Sharonda, it seems like the critics were just uh, split on uh, the violence of
0: it. Is, Is that your read on this? It's just disrespectful. It's just pure disrespect. Lies. Lies. We are here for the violence. That's what made the movie. And how how dare you just focus on the violence when they literally gave us a heartwarming relationship between Creasy and this child played by the amazing Dakota Fanny. I can't even believe that this is what was on their minds when they walked out of the theater watching Man on Fire.
2: It's early in the show, but you know which way Sharonda's leaning. You know which way I'm leaning. But now let's turn it over to our interview with another Ellis I don't think we're related. Let's ask him. Jay Ellis is now joining us. And as promised, we are now welcoming our very special guest from Insecure, currently on its final season. Also, has a very exciting film coming up called Someone I... Is it Someone I Used to Know, Jay, on Amazon? Yeah. Someone I used to know, and somebody that I probably should have known because we share the same last name. Now, last time I checked, you and I are not related. Is that is that what we're going with Jay Ellis on the show?
3: That's what we're going to go with for, unless you are from South Carolina. I'm from North Carolina. My grandma lives in North Carolina, so there's my middle name is also Ramon. So sometimes, you know, I think my grandma might have been you know, she might have stepped out with the milkman. I don't know. Uh, hopefully she doesn't listen to this podcast,
2: but, but yeah, my grandma actually lives in North Carolina. So who
3: knows? Maybe we're, we're related.
2: We'll do the 23 and me because we got me from North Carolina. We got, South Carolina, Jay Ellis representing, and Georgia, that would be Atlanta, representing Sharonda Williams here today. And what we're talking about, uh, I want to talk about Insecure with you, I want to talk about a lot of the fun stuff you have coming up, but the movie you picked, Sharonda and I were talking about it before you got in here, and Man on Fire is one of those films, directed by Tony Scott, starring Denzel Washington and Dakota Fanning. Sharonda and I are aghast at its tomato meter score. We we can't believe it's 89% on the audience score. Which everybody hears Man on Fire and it's like, oh yeah, it's definitely a fresh movie. It's fresh with the audience. With the critics, 38% rotten on the tomato meter. So, Jay Ellis, you now have the floor. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about Man on Fire?
3: A hundred percent on this one. You know what? I think it might have just been a movie that was a little ahead of its time in terms of like style and look. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to love a character who's literally scorching earth, uh, although he's doing it for a right reason. But, you know, I think it's hard for, for for folks to sometimes come around to that. But this movie is just everything. I mean, it's probably my number two Denzel performance ever. Um, yeah. And it's it's probably well, it's not
2: my number one Tony Scott movie. I, we'll, we'll get to that later, but it's definitely my number two. I have a feeling I know what your number one Tony Scott movie is. Uh, Sharonda, you're such a professional because you and I both had to bite our tongues when we were listening to Two Minutes with Tim. And Tim is going through all of the reviews that came out at the time that Man on Fire was released back in 2004. Sharonda, a lot of the critics had an issue with the violence. And now you have an issue with the critics that had an issue with the violence.
0: I mean, first of all, the disrespect in these reviews talking about violence, which is like that's what I was here for listening to Denzel go off on people while he's torturing them. That is the sale of the entire movie. So I just I was just shocked. I was just like with all the violence we have now, Jay, I think you were right. It probably was ahead of his time, but it, I, it just it really bothered my spirit that the reason that it got so many poor reviews was mainly due to the violence. I just, I'm gonna pray for them because I also,
3: you know what, maybe I'm going to join you in that prayer. We're going to, we're going to do a circle because what I also don't understand is the title tells you what you're going to see. The title very clearly tells you this man is about to do some damage. So you, you knew what you were signing up for.
2: Yeah, Man on Fire is a title where it's not exactly going to be stepbrothers. Like, you know that there's going to be something very intense happening in this movie, which ends up being the kidnapping of Dakota Fanning and Denzel Washington. Who better to hire to go rescue someone than him? But there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of stuff that happens along the way. Jay, when was the first time you saw this movie? I I, I don't want to date you. Um, I mean, I don't really want to date you in either sense, but it's nothing personal. It's just how I feel. I don't want to age you, I should say. When you talk about you seeing this movie, were you old enough to see it in theaters in 2004? Oh, yeah. I, w-
3: I was in college when this movie came out. I just finished oh, yes. college, actually, when this movie came out. So I'm I'm dating myself here. But yeah, I actually, uh, me and three of my college teammates, uh, Anthony Hill, Rob Johnson, Jack Menashe, we all went to go see it in Portland, Oregon. Uh, oh my gosh, what is the name of that mall? Oh, I can see it. I can see I it. I bet it has
2: rose in it somewhere. Everything in Portland has rose. <laughs> Is the rose, something. Yeah. Oh man, uh, it's gonna drive me crazy. Anyway, we went to go see
3: it at the at the movie theater in the mall at the Lloyd Center. There we go, at the Lloyd Center
2: in uh, in Portland. And so you walk out of the movie, and you and your friends are talking about what when you leave. Were you just blown right away, or like was it was it just this amazing transcendental action experience? Did you have to sit with it for a little bit? No, I think we immediately walked... I think you didn't
3: want to see Denzel go at the end. You didn't want to see Creasy go at the end. I think that was like... We wanted him to pull through, right? So I think that was something that we kept talking about. Um, But also, you know, he did what he needed to do. And so there was also this, like, amazing full circle moment with that. But yeah, I mean, the action, for sure. I think thinking about literally... he, He did not kill one person the same way. Everyone or torture one person the same way. It was a different tactic for every single person in the movie. And it was brilliant. I mean, and just the way it was shot and which of course at the time I didn't know much about that, but like now being able to look back and think about that moment, like it kept you on the edge of your seat, right? All those quick cuts, all those like almost like photo burned in kind of shots of the city as you're traveling through, like it kept you on the edge of your seat and waiting for something to happen every single time.
2: And that was the thing that impressed me too, because this was one of my Netflix DVDs, Sharonda. This was one of this was at that time, kids, if you don't remember, Netflix, before you could just hit a button and, it, and every movie ever appears, you had to ask them to send you DVDs and then you'd send them back and then they'd send you more. So this is one of my DVDs and I probably kept it for like three weeks because I just could not stop rewatching it. It's so violent, like you said, but it's also endlessly rewatchable for whatever reason. First time Sharonda Williams came about Man on Fire was when?
0: I mean, I was a teenager, but I did see it in the theaters because, you know, in my household, if it's a Denzel movie coming out, we go into the movies to watch it. It's church. It's no ifs, ands, or buts. Like, black families, black mamas, oh, I'm going to see that Denzel film. So for me, I liked it, but I will say that I do have some issues after rewatching it recently. It is slightly problematic in some points, and they were very petty at the end. When they said "thank you, Mexico City," I was like, "Sir, you trash Mexico City this whole time, and then you gonna do a thank you at the end?" Very petty, but <laughs> I'm gonna assume that his heart was in the right place. But it does have some problematic moments in the film. I'm not gonna lie. I
2: yeah, still love
0: I don't want my black card taken away. I still love <laughs> the film, Let me be clear.
2: That's fair and and he's done 5 movies with Tony Scott and yeah. and he's done he's done a few that are fresh but you also have those well, like Deja Vu was like right on the cusp of being fresh then this is the lowest rated movie on the tomato meter that he did with Tony Scott which is so shocking because it's yeah. arguably the most popular one now that we're looking back on it in 2021 so let's get into some of the scenes that, that we love some of those maybe those problematic elements that you're talking about Sharonda Jay start with you what is what's the scene when you think about man on fire what's the scene that you say that's why this movie the critics got it wrong the audience got it right
3: I mean there's a couple of things I think you know when you watch him I gotta say actually one of the first scenes that pops in my head is not a Denzel scene although uh I'm going to go through a bunch of them when walking is sitting on the couch and he's like with the detective and he's like eating, but he's also talking about how like, you know, you can be an artist at anything, right? Artist at food and artists at painting, whatever it is. And he goes, art is, or death is Creasy's art and he's about to paint his final masterpiece. And like, to me, like it literally sets up what's about to happen for the next 45 minutes of that movie. Like you clearly know that this man is a, what we've seen is just him warming up. Like he's literally just getting started. But I think, you know, the interrogation scene or that when he's sitting in the car with the cop, when he's cutting his fingers off, like Denzel's just so poised. He's just so chill about it. and just so easy about reaching over and cutting his man's fingers off while he's asking him questions. Wait, wait, wait. Hey, give me
0: one cigarette, please, eh? Okay.
2: Okay. Okay. Bueno?
3: Okay, my friend, So off to the next life for you. I guarantee you, you won't be lonely. And then taking out his notebook and just writing a few, a few thoughts. Just he doesn't want to forget these things. You know what I mean? Like it's just so. <laughs> The performance is just so nuanced and specific, but also so effortless at the same time. I Also love, there's this moment where he's sitting outside of this club that he's about to go into. And he's, he's just casing the club. And even literally just watching him sit on the fountain and like look at the club and how he like looks over the top of his glasses. Like there's, you can see so much is going through his mind like in those moments. It's just, it's all great. I love all of it.
2: Yeah, Sharada, I don't think that Denzel ever needs to audition for any movie again, but let's just say he had to audition for Antoine Fuqua to be in The Equalizer. You just play Man on Fire, and it's like, this is the guy. This is the guy that can take care of any situation, and it's like moments like what Jay said. One of my favorite moments is when he he kidnaps one of the kingpins, and he's got him by his boxers, and he's tied to the car, and I'm just going to say it. He... He puts a bomb in his ass. He puts a bomb in it. Now that is that's being creative to the next level. You know, that's not the first time that Denzel's character has done something like that. Creasy knows how to do this. Yeah. He he literally sh- he bought two of everything. He bought two of the plastic cartridge. He bought two of the bombs just so he could show the guy what he what is currently up his butt. And I just I love how calm he is because one of the quotes that Denzel has about playing this character, John Creasy, that I loved was that. As the pressure intensifies, his heart rate goes down, which freaks everybody else out because you think like a great athlete who's just has ice water in their veins during that crucial moment of the game. That's who John Creasy is. And it's moments like that where one person, one unfortunate SOB is is having the worst day of their life. And Denzel just cool as a cucumber. I love stuff like that. Sharonda, your scene that says this is why Man on Fire is either great or something that you might have an issue with.
0: You know what really stood out to me? I just looked at this movie like it was a parenting movie. And just let me just just bear with me, okay? Because first, Denzel was giving me like black middle aged daddy. I don't care what you kids want. Even in the (laughs) rectum thing, like he was just like. You got five minutes. Like I don't know what to tell you. Like I got somewhere to be, but you need to go ahead and tell me what you need to do. I was just like, I feel like I was in a parenting moment. Like that's how my parent would talk to me. Like before you get this ass whooping, like I need you to answer some questions before and you I. You gonna get it out. no matter
3: what, and you yeah, gonna get you it don't no get matter it. what. It's coming.
0: Yeah, like that's that's what I was getting.
3: What I do? Where did you, you go now? What am I gonna do? I'm gonna leave. I gotta go. Oh, yeah,
0: we got oh, come on, come on. What about me? Right,
3: what about you? we got 40 seconds. Come on. 45. Come on. Get, get, get. Uh, last wish, please, please, please. Last wish.
0: I wish you had more time. And then also, too, like, there's a scene, like, where he's about to, like, shoot someone. And then the, the man is like, hey, like, what about forgiveness or what about letting God judge him? He's like, baby, I don't have... That's not about me. I'm just here to make sure that he makes his meeting with the Lord to have him deliver judgment. It's just those little, like, sayings that he had and how he says it. Like, I don't care. Like, there is no remorse that I have for anyone. And I think also, too, Mark Anthony, I do want to give him kudos because this movie could have been called Trash Parents. Because when he talked to him and he told him that he was an alcoholic... And he was just like, don't tell my wife. I said, sir, right then and there, I was like, the daddy did it. The daddy did it. Because I don't know who is hiring an alcoholic to watch their child. But I just know he's a trash parent at that moment.
3: I also love the moment right after that when they step into the house and the wife asks him if he wants a drink. And he looks at Mark Anthony and says, yeah, like a, a, a whiskey and a water, a whiskey with a water back. Like, I love that. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna take this drink. I know you told me not to tell her, but what? I got the job.
0: He's like, you're going do what I give you.
2: It's also, like, because you have Denzel, and, and he's a great lead in here, and he was, he was asked about this movie and, and acting um, against people who are great actors like him. He said there's only two people in his entire career, I found this fascinating, two people in his entire career that he actually found himself, that he had to stop watching them act because he was just in the scene, but he was just enamored with what they're doing. One is Gene Hackman in Crimson Tide. The other one, Dakota Fanning, in this film and he, I love the way he he described her performance because somebody is, referred to her as a child actor. And he's like, she's not a child actor. She's an actor who happens to be a child. And in that scene at the end, that emotional climax where she gets released and she's running on the bridge towards him and they have that hug, all of it comes out on, he's he's holding it back, but she just lets everything out. And it's just such a beautiful moment emotionally that's the thing about this movie jay it's a great action movie it yeah. like taken's a great action movie but it doesn't get me emotionally worked up like man on fire
3: yeah this has heart in a way that like i talk about this with friends all the time you know when we think about like even from like the diehards through so what is that like uh early 90s mid 90s something like that was the first 88 so 88 you know and then you go through like 2004 with something like man on fire like, there's this, like, 15-year, 20-year period where, like, these action movies had so much heart. Like, you you leaned into these characters and you cared about these characters so much. And I think, like, that, that, to your point, like, although this is an amazing action movie and although, like, you know, if you if you are an action junkie like I am, like, yes, you are excited to go watch him, like, literally scorch the earth. And I think at one point he says he's going to kill everybody who was a part of it, everybody who like might've been a part of it. Like, you know, he, he's gonna, there's no end to it, but then you see those moments, you know, there's this moment where he looks down in his notebook where Dakota Fanning's character wrote, like, I love you, Creasy. I love you, Creasy. I love you, Creasy or something like that. And like even just little moments like that, like they are, they grab your heart, you know, more than for example, Mark Anthony missing his daughter, you know what I'm saying? Like his character missing his daughter. And I think that's just so powerful.
2: Yeah, there's something to it, Sharonda, where it's interesting Jay goes back to to Die Hard because that was sort of the transition of, we had these huge muscle-bound heroes like Schwarzenegger saving his daughter in commando, and and it's nice. He blows up an entire country, takes on a whole army by himself, but you never really feel that emotional connection, and maybe that's because of the way Schwarzenegger's built. It's like, of course, nothing's going to hurt this guy. We knew John McClane could get hurt, and John Creasy, even though he's an expert in all these different fields... He he still is immortal. mortal. He, he's still he's immortal, not immortal. Yeah, and right. we feel his pain. We feel his emotion. Did this movie stir it up for you as well?
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, they gave us, you know, I love sports movies. Like those are like my movies that just make you feel good on the inside. And Denzel gave us like a whole sports movie while he was still killing people. The whole <laughs> women coaching scenes like and when we got yeah. to the meet. And then she ran and hugged. I was like, oh my, they literally could have took that picture and put it as the cover and literally pissed everybody <laughs> off because like you see that, that moment and you just like, oh my goodness, like I'm going to take swimming classes. I want Dizelle to be my swim coach. Like you just really, and especially to see how she was getting on his nerves at the beginning of the movie and like when she ba- he basically pissed her off to where they ended up. Like it just made you want to root for Creasy. Like I just, it's like a redemption story at the same time like he's a man who has committed so many sins and interacting with this little girl is really helped him find peace helped him find the resolve like you know when he talks about to christopher walken's character like you know all of the things that we've done even though they never told us in the movie that was a problem i had but you just felt at peace with his character and it was like mm-hmm. one of the times where you can actually see a full circle moment happened with a character arc, even though he was killing everyone the entire time. Yeah,
2: there's there's like a redemptive quality about it, Jay. I don't know what it is about certain movies where you have a character. We know that they have horrific pasts where they've done a lot of evil things, but it's almost like if he just gets through this thing, okay. Or at least if he gets Dakota Fanning back in one piece, it's like, it's almost like you're going to confession. It's like all yeah. of all of your past sins are washed away if you just complete this one mission.
3: Yeah. You know, there's something, I think this character, this Creasy character too, like it's, it's, um, he's a purist, you know what I mean? And I think that like, and, and that is both in his job and taking care of Dakota Fanning's character, as well as his job and going out and executing anyone who might've been a part of, you know, kidnapping her. And I think there is something that is very, um, maybe not the right word, but very altruistic about it in a really interesting way, especially the, the, the fact that he cares enough for this girl that he has not been working with that long, but he cares for her enough to go through, to put himself in this kind of danger and to go through a country where he does, he is, he is an outsider and cause all these problems. There's something about that journey that you're like, yeah, like you, you putting it all on the line, man, you risk it, everything. I'll, I'll throw it all over. I'll throw, I don't care what you did wherever you were before. Like none of that matters as long as you keep doing what you're doing for this reason. And there's something that is really uh, beautiful about that. Ooh. Yeah, ooh.
0: Like, yeah was, go
2: ahead, shrine That's a great setup.
0: Yeah, like, I was just like, I don't think he's still, I don't think he's seeing heaven. Like, I don't think he gonna make it to the pearly gates. But after <laughs> watching the movie, I was just like, Lord, like, I think we can make an exception for Creed. Right? I think he he did, <laughs> I'm not gonna say he did the Lord's work, because, you know, thou shalt not kill. But I'm just saying, I think that we could definitely do a petition to get Creasy to the pearly
3: gates. And at least get him, at least get him outside the gates. Even if he don't get in, at least he just camps out outside forever. Have
0: a discussion. Like, let's just talk about it a little bit.
2: Okay, that's that's the ruling I'm gonna make. If I'm Saint Peter, this is what I'm doing. Denzel gets up to the pearly gates, and it's like, hey, I appreciate what you just did, but um, you're on the wait list. You're not in yet, so he has to wait outside the pearly gates until Dakota Fanning's character. Hope she has a nice long life and whatever okay. career she leads. Once, because we know she's going to heaven, so once she gets up there and she gets in, he can be her plus one. I think that sounds that that seems fair to me. I'm with
0: that. I'm okay with that. I'm but okay. the
2: question is this, is he doing, is John Creasy doing this? Is he going on this mission more for her, more for Dakota Fanick to rescue her? Or is he doing it more for himself? It feels like he starts this thing out because he has something to prove to himself. And then somewhere in the movie, none of that matters anymore. And he just needs to get her back.
3: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both when we meet this guy, there's clearly, I don't want to say selfishness, but there, I mean, you know, it's like, he's very self-involved and there's some selfishness and he has, he clearly has a drinking problem and he's dealing with these demons. I think you're right. I think he does feel like he needs to cleanse himself in some way. He needs to do this for him. He needs to know that he can still do this. He needs to, you know, I think there's a thrill in it that, you know, he enjoys it in a lot of ways. And then I think you're right. Like somewhere in the middle of it. And I don't know if it's as he's kind of putting the pieces together or, You know, I think about that scene where he's at the club and you have these kind of flashes where the woman is telling the story that like they threw her against the wall and they did this and they put her in the trunk. And, you know, whether those are Denzel's kind of flashes and he's thinking of those or whether they're truly just, you know, obviously flashbacks and we're seeing what happened. But somewhere in there, you do see it start to turn and you do see him almost care more about getting her back than caring about whatever could potentially happen to him.
0: I mean, I think for me, I see, I think he was doing it for her. Cause I mean, until the last, what, like 15, 20 minutes of the movie, he thinks she's dead. Like he doesn't know that she's alive. Like it's presumed Mm. she is dead and he is just on this revenge mission to make sure that everyone pays their penance for having something to do with her kidnapping Mm. and her death. So I think it was more so, I don't know if he was trying to write the sins of his past. But I think that he was just at a point, I mean, at the beginning of the movie, he was already at a point where he had nothing left to give. Like there was nothing else for him to possibly live for. He's really just going through the motions of life until he meets his maker. And I just think that this little girl gave him a renewed purpose. And if there was one thing that he was going to do, because I think he knew that he, like this was going to lead to his death. He wasn't coming out alive from any of this. I think he wanted to honor her memory until we realize
2: that she's actually alive. Jay earlier brought up Christopher Walken's character. And so I I just found this quote that Christopher Walken's talking about playing this guy, Paul. And I love the way he put it because I'm not going to do a Walken impression because I can't nail it. But the quote (laughs) itself is that uh, he hoped that he upset people's expectations in a way because I know I carry a certain amount of villainous baggage when it comes to these characters. This time, it felt much more interesting to be The good guy. So, Jay, I want to ask you, this is an accomplished actor. Is it more fun to play a bad guy or a good guy? Oh, I think a bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even a question. A bad guy. I think you just
3: get to lean into stuff that hopefully you don't do, you know, day to day in like your regular life, your normal life. Um, But I I don't know. There's, you know, I think it's speaking of. There's this uh, Tony Scott quote about Denzel and about how like he brings a different version of himself to every movie to at this point that they had done. Right. He He's brought a different Denzel. And I think like there, there is something that's to that. Like, and when you look at this guy versus like, uh, you know, an Alonzo from training day, like wildly different guys who are both out there, like doing what they are, they are very locked in on the thing that they're going to do. Um, but still wildly different. So I think, you know, getting to play a bad guy, I think is a lot of fun. I think it's, 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 um, it's an opportunity to dive into some stuff that you probably normally wouldn't do and and maybe uh, let some sides of your, you know, personality and psyche out that that you kind of keep locked away uh, or that you want to explore, whatever it may be, you know?
2: Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up Tony Scott because I kind of want to shift gears into his directing of this movie because Tony Scott's always been one of my favorite directors as far back as as Top Gun. Obviously, Jay might have a little bit of insight into that, but then we also get to I think a criminally underrated movie, I think Beverly Hills Cop 2 is the best movie in the Beverly Hills Cop franchise. It, the action is definitely up to notch, but it's also, it's it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen because Tony Scott had the, he knew how to do action, but he also knew enough to let Eddie do yeah. what Eddie Murphy's going to do. The scene where he steals a house is still one of the great scenes in, in movie history, in my opinion. What does Tony Scott bring to this movie, Sharonda, that you're just like, that's why he needed to be the director of this?
0: I mean, I think for me, it was having a way to balance a very gruesome movie, but still have the caliber of talent that he had within these roles. And it's really their performances that help elevate it into so much more. But being able to balance that story of revenge, but to also make you want to root for the characters, to make you actually become invested And what is happening in Mexico City with this kidnappings to see how far it goes and to just weave in all these different subplots. when we have the journalists that are working on it um, and, you know, what's happening with her father. I just think that he found a way to just take something that most people would just do a strict revenge type of movie and really just give it so many more layers to make it more interesting to just make you actually think to use your brain. You know as to what is actually happening with this conspiracy here
2: yeah jay the action in this movie or the way that that tony scott paces it it's it's clearly tony scott movie for that reason the guy knew how to pace an action movie as well as anyone who's ever done it
3: yeah and and you know I've, i've obviously gotten to be a student of uh tony scott's recently and have been gone back and like realized how many of his movies i absolutely love and you're right like there is something about this movie. And for me, it just kind of goes back to like, there's some, there's, he has those punch in moments at certain times. Again, we have like a lot of quick cuts that kind of uh, transition us to where we're headed or where we're going or, or quick action moments. Um, and then like, I think of like the big wide shot of like Denzel walking away from the fire, like with the, the like, there's such an epic shot. Like, he looks like a god walking away from this destruction that he just caused. And it's got this kind of a, like a lower angle on him a little bit, so he's bigger in front, right? So the, just little things like that, where it's like genius, you know. It's just purely like there is a there is a specificity to every single frame of this movie and of most of his of all his movies. And I think like that is that is Tony Scott, like that's the legacy.
2: Yeah, his his filmmaking has such an energetic quality to it, but it's not always th- that kinetic energy we're talking about. Be- one of those examples would be when when that kidnap or when he kidnaps the one of the leaders of that cartel and he's got him pretty much naked under yeah. a bridge. You yeah. see all these quick cut-ins that you're talking about, Jay, and as me watching it, that, like, that hyper... It's like a hypertense feeling when when he's doing all these different movements. And I think that that accentuates the panic that any normal human being would feel in that situation. But then we always go back to Denzel and just and not only is he relaxed and collected, he's cracking jokes. He's talking about that he has all day, like Sharonda said, and this guy's only got four minutes left. But then you but then you juxtapose that with the scene at the end when he's going to get Dakota back and he's walking up that bridge. And you just see a guy who's just done. He's just he's yeah. just spent. And he looks like Kellen Winslow being carried off the field after the the 81 playoff game. He's just, it, there's nothing else that this guy has left. And Tony Scott does both of those things remarkably well. And I think yeah. that this movie is one of the best examples of this. Here's something I didn't know, though. And I, and I, I love both y'all's reaction to this. 75% of this film was improvised. How does that... Obviously, they knew what the beats were and where they wanted to go. But Sharonda, 75% of this film is improv. How does that hit you?
0: I mean, it makes total sense. Like I said, I felt like I was watching my father if he was like, you know, a (laughs) a killer. But I mean, from how Denzel was talking, I was just like, this is how Denzel talked to his kids. Like, it just (laughs) felt like. It just felt like Denzel. Like, it didn't feel as though that this is something that somebody will be able to write this type of dialogue, because it just felt like him. And, like, you know how you can watch movies and you can tell, like, from the writing, like, I can tell that they didn't write this, like, with this actor in mind of actually performing this role, performing that dialogue. I just think just from his, like, comebacks, like, what he's saying, the jokes that he has, like it truly feels like Denzel totally like made this up. Like this came from his mind.
2: (laughs) You see why John David Washington is such a disciplined actor. Maybe after watching Man on fire, that's the, that that's the household you grow up in, you know how to do things by the book. Jay, 75% of this, I imagine as an actor that that's got to be like going to Candyland, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, it, it is an amazing amount of freedom and, and sounds like so much fun. Uh, And I think about all those moments, again, I think, you know, those all these moments where he's torturing folks and he's got folks at gunpoint or bombs and they, you know, wrecked them or cutting fingers (laughs) off or hanging from bridges like there's going to be improv on both sides is going to be improv because you're in a situation like you're begging for your life and you're pleading for your life. Anything and everything you can say will come out. You know what I mean? So you don't get so you don't get killed. And then to your point, Sharonda, I think like you know, Denzel's just like, he is somebody's daddy. He's like, yo, this is like, hey, it's just going to be what it's going to be. You can sit here and cry all you want to, but you're going to catch these bullets. So you're going to tell me or you're not going to tell me <laughs> Like, either way. You know what I mean? Like, There's just this thing to it where it's like, I don't care. There's nothing you can tell me at all. That's going to change my mind. You still going to get this woman. Like this belt is still coming out. And like, I think there is something to that, that like of course he was just like letting it out he was just like saying you know being him in a lot of ways and 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 at least i think when you play a character like creasy who's probably been to the the depths of darkness that that character has gone to probably in previous lives you know there probably is some um uh, there's some lightness i guess in a way i guess you find lightness in very dark situations in order to get through them at times. And so I think like why he's joking through some of that stuff, I think is that it's like, yeah, this is just life, but it's going to happen. Like I, I don't see worse than this.
2: Would you credit this movie? A lot of people want to give it to take where it's like that, that middle-aged guy. Who's got that one last, that, that one last kick-ass mission in them. I feel like it might have been Man on Fire. Man on Fire came out in 2004. Taken was, I believe, 2008 or 2009. But then we got all of these movies where it's just like somebody who's middle-aged, maybe a little bit older, but they have that one last ride. The Expendables made a whole franchise out of it. Man on Fire, though, it's a role that I don't think Denzel would have done as well earlier in his career because you need to have those life reps. You need to look like you've lived a life in order to play this character. So, Sharonda, do we have Man on Fire to thank for all of these great middle-aged to older person the action roles that we get now.
0: I mean, y'all better put some respect on Denzel's name because he definitely paved the way, okay, and paved the way for the violence and the brutality since everybody <laughs> had an issue in 2004 and now it's just okay to be killing people. I would have to say, yeah, but I also think that it's kind of like, it's kind of a lost art because if you think about movies like Taken, you don't really have the emotional punches that go with it. You don't have these powerhouse performances. And that's not to take anything away from Liam, because I think he's definitely created his own lane and secured the bag because of it. But I think that watching it again, it was like, this is what I actually miss. I miss those action films that can give you brutality, but they can also pull at your heart. They can also give you performances that make you care about these characters, and I really, I hope that we get back to more movies like this. Um, I definitely think that he's paved the way. Um, I just hope that they kind of, kind of like, let's just bring it in a, just a little bit, just give us a little, a little heart to it at the same time.
2: Yeah, Jay, uh, first of all, this movie's got to be great news for you because it means that you have a long career ahead of you. And then eventually you can do a movie where you get to seek revenge on somebody who wronged your family or someone else. So you can age into a role like this, but uh, action movie, something where you get to play a character like a John Creasy. Does that have any interest for you now? Or maybe maybe if you look at your career and where you want to take it somewhere in the future?
3: Yeah, hundred you know, percent. I, I tell people this all the time. Like I'm six, 215 pounds. I've been an athlete my entire like college basketball. I've been an athlete my entire life. Like for me, I'm like, yo, I, the next, I think for me, I think is like, I want to use my physicality. Like I want to, I want to go run and jump and, and, and be a marksman and do all those fun things, you know? And even something, like, again, I just go back to like, there is something about I, I love an everyday guy who gets put in a situation where he has to essentially rise to something that he didn't know that he was capable of. I also love the idea of a guy who has all the skill, has done something that has gotten him kicked out, booted out, demoted, and like he has feels like he has nothing else in life because he doesn't have that thing anymore. And then there's something he finds along the way that like brings that like energy or brings that life back into him and then sends him on this new journey. I love characters like that, um, and and I love them in action films, and so, yeah, that's that's definitely where I want to be.
2: Well, I'm 5'10 I'm and a half, so even though you're 6'4", I'm going to need you to post up. I'm going to need you in the low post, and you drive the action that way, then you just kick it to me if you need a deep threat. <laughs> uh, we, we, we've been hitting around it, we've been beating around the bush, but you do have an action role coming up soon, and it is in the Tony Scott lineage anyway. You're going to be in Top Gun Maverick, and... Yeah. Jay, you can't, this movie can't get delayed anymore. All right. I'm sorry to put, I've been waiting for this movie now for two years. I remember seeing the trailer when Tom Cruise went on stage at Comic-Con to debut it. And I watched that trailer like 35 times. There's just people, especially people of a certain age, I'm 41. You see that trailer and it just does stuff to you. All I've, all I can tell anybody about this film is that I've, I've heard from sources very close to the movie. If you only see one movie in the theater for the rest of your life, You have to make a Top Gun Maverick. How excited are you to finally have this movie come out?
3: Yeah, I'm beyond excited, man. You know, it's been such a huge part of my life, uh, three years of my life at this point. Um, And and it was such an amazing experience to get to work with Tom uh, and, you know, to to be able to say like to your point that I'm part of like a Tony Scott lineage, right? And Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. And like, there's so many amazing folks, Hans Zimmer. Like there's so many amazing folks who are part of that original um, and, and who paved the way for us to, to come back and do Top Gun Maverick. I, you know, my biggest thing uh, is I just want selfishly every single person in the world who can make it to a theater to go to a theater to see the movie because it it just deserves that experience you know i think we want it to be we want people to feel safe you know you want people to feel like they can go out and enjoy it and feel safe because it's a movie where like you're going to lean in you're going to get thrown back you're going to go left you're going to go right like it has these emotional ups and downs in it like this beautiful emotional arc in it as well as the action and i just think that like I love watching a movie at home like anybody else, but this ain't the movie that you watch at home. This is not it. This is not the movie you watch at home. You go to the theaters for this movie. It is, These, these F 18s are literally going to come flying off the screen at you, and you will have to lean back and you won't get that same sensation at home.
2: Oh, uh, Sharonda, we might have to go 40X for this one.
0: I mean, he just told me, I was like, you better hype this up. Okay, <laughs> I'm ready.
2: You go. Can, you can go to the theater and, and you can see Jay in a movie like Top Gun Maverick, which is, I believe, now this coming summer, next summer, I guess, yeah. uh, is, okay. is when you're finally going to be able to, to see that in the big screen the way it was intended. If you're a fan of watching Jay on the small screen, then you're probably like Sharonda and I and you are a huge adorer of Insecure, which is now in its final season. We're about to have the final episode of Insecure, which is going to be such an emotional moment for I'm sure for you filming it, but also Sharonda, you and I were talking before Jay hopped on the show. We've both been fans of this for for pretty much since its initial run. I think I came on in season two when Molly, the Wonder Dog's mom, introduced me to the show, and and ever since it's been part of my Sunday night ritual when it's airing. Insecure and and everything that it's done, especially the relationship between Issa and Lawrence. What what, what has this show done for you, Sharonda?
0: You know, this show has actually prompted a lot of necessary conversations that people don't talk about in regards to dating. I like that it gave people like this vehicle to really experience what relationships look like from a woman and a man's point of view, but also to just being able to see people who look like me, like fall in love, to see Black love on screen, to see Black success, you know, especially like with Lawrence's character, like the arc that he went through, Of, you know, losing himself and then really finding what makes him happy. I think that is some things that we don't really talk about, that sometimes you have to kind of you kind of have to hit rock bottom or you might not know what you want to do, but you will find yourself. And it's those experiences through relationships, through friendships that really help you. And it's a series that just made you feel like. It's okay for me to be where I am that there's something better that's going to come, you know, along the horizon and I just think that it's just so impactful to watch a Black cast, you know, cover so many topics, to start so many conversations and to really just show us as human on screen. I just think that that's a really big deal. That's something that needs to be celebrated. And I think it's a show that people are going to come back to and reference, reference for many years to come. So thank you. Thank you, Jay.
3: Uh, thank you. That that, uh, that just melted my heart. You know, it's it's weird to think about, we've just been in it. Like our heads are down. We just get up and go to work every day and we love each other and we have fun. And, you know, season one, we were like, we think this show is great. We'll see what people see when it comes out, you know, because we were just so in a bubble. And obviously the response was amazing. But I think for us, like every day, we still just got up and went to work and, and loved our characters again, loved each other, loved our crew, our crew, our crew. I cannot give enough like love and respect to our crew, to our writers, um, but it is wild. To be on the other end of this thing and hear people talk about what this show is meant to them, it is something that I don't know that I'm fully ready for. To be honest, uh, probably because I don't want to be dehydrated from all the crying. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I, you know, people throw out like other shows that are iconic to me and my child. Whether that's Martin, whether that's you know, people people talk about you know uh, uh, Martin and, and Gina, and people talk about whitley and and Dwayne, you know what i mean and like there's just these moments that from other shows that are like seared in my brain forever and to think that like folks will think about this show in that way especially black folks in this country will think about this show in that way to me is like it's crazy. It's is really it wild.
2: Emotionally, yet, ha, like, it, it, did you have? Was there a moment on on set when it when it was your last scene and you rapped, or or is it maybe going to be once the final episode aired? When does it hit JL? Is like that the the finality of it all, and really gives you a chance to look back on what y'all have accomplished.
3: Well, Mark. As an Ellis cousin, you should know that we dodge uh, uh, emotion whenever we can, vulnerability whenever we can. So I definitely made a joke out of my last scene, uh, got up and like did a whole speech and made a joke out of it because I was not going to let anybody see the tears. But I will say uh, we all the last week that we filmed, each one of us wrapped a different night. Natasha wrapped, I wrapped, Yvonne wrapped, Issa wrapped. And we all went to each other, and Amanda at the beginning of that week as well. And we all went to each other's uh, rap. And whether no matter what time it was, whether we were working or whether we weren't working, like Yvonne rapped at three o'clock in the morning, I showed up at 30 and sat there. We all we all came in. Same thing with Issa, who rapped at like six or seven in the morning. And I was more emotional watching everyone go through their moment and their speech and their kind of what this show is meant to them and thanking everybody is that's kind of when I was like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't lose it, lose it until I don't want to give this away, but we, there's something that, that, that we did where, uh, yeah, I can't actually, cause that'll fully give it away. But right. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we we'll see. Fully, we only <laughs> got, like, <laughs> we
2: only got another couple of weeks. Sharonda, do you have any burning five or any burning season five questions? 4J, that that he can answer in full.
0: I was like, oh, I got questions. I have questions. (laughs) Look, I mean, one of the things that I do want to talk to you about is really the legacy of Lawrence. I mean, we've watched Lawrence, like, you know, go from being hated at times to, you know a whole campaign to bring Lawrence back to insecure. I mean, what has that experience been like, especially when we thought that we wouldn't see Lawrence again and then seeing how so many people were like, no, we actually need this person. What was that like for you?
3: I mean, it's wild. Like it's still, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be able to put it into words or to explain to folks how much it means that they... I either identified, related to, uh, or were interested in, whatever it is, this character that made people have the reactions that they have and lean in the way they did. And especially, you know, I think about this guy, I, Lawrence wasn't supposed to be after season one. Like Lawrence was supposed to die in the finale of season one. That was it. Like we wasn't ever going to see him again. And then fast forward, you know, f- five seasons later, w- to your point, like the amount of stuff that we covered, in Lawrence's journey has, I don't know if it's been done for any male character period, but it sure as hell hasn't been done for any black male character. And so many of my boys would hit me and would just say, thank you. Like, I feel like I'm being seen or I feel like I just went through this with my girl or we argued about that three months ago or whatever it is. And to me, it was just like, you know, it's it's been an honor and like a pleasure and such a privilege to be able to play a character who who really makes people feel like they've been seen and feel like their story has been told in some way and like they have been recognized and and that is you know it is it's everything it is it is why I do this job like it is it is why I wanted to be an actor like literally for this reason and and here it is like with this character and that's huge
2: We're this close to breaking him. We're this close to breaking him, Sharonda.
0: I mean, it's so, I I really want to talk about, I think it's episode three. It was the episode with you. I was like, let me say, I call her condolences. Let me say condola. Let me be respectful. (laughs) But the co-parenting discussion, I I truly think that it was one of the best depictions of what co-parenting looks like. Outside of just for a couple that's not together, but even having people who are married who deal with co-parenting yeah. issues on how to take care of their children. I really want you to talk about filming that episode, but also to going into when we see the growth of that relationship later yeah. in this season when, you know, you guys have this conversation where you're just like, I'm happy that like we're in this place. You know, what was that experience like from filming episode three and going into, you know, us seeing Condola and Lawrence come out on the other side of this?
3: Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I have to thank my 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 co-star, Christina Elmore. Like, I, you know, absolute brilliant talent and genius. And she made every single day at work so easy um, and so fun. And 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 we got to play and just find stuff that, you know, I don't know if I don't know if we would have found if, if it would have been anyone else. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, you know, it's interesting because going into that episode, really the last time we kind of see the two of them together is when she tells Lawrence that she's pregnant and that she can be in the life or not in the life, whatever he wants, right? Like she's happy with whatever he wants to do. And then fast forward, here we are, and you know, on Lawrence's side, uh, he's trying and, he is flying back and forth and he is tired and you know, he probably didn't realize the commitment of saying I'm gonna be here every single weekend was going to be as exhausting as it has actually become to a certain point in that episode. And I think there's this thing that's happening and I think this has happened with Lawrence. uh, And I, for me, this is the, this is like the growth. This is where it turns, but I feel like we have watched Lawrence for four and a half seasons at that point, basically tried to push his way through things and tried to make, Issa do something or his job do something or any of the women he's dated he's like i got this vision this is my thing I'm, i got blinders on I, like i'm just gonna go do it and has never really thought about how other people feel how they what they think you know how their input should be you know interspersed throughout the, his thoughts whatever it is and i think that he's doing the same thing with elijah and what being what fatherhood and with co-parenting he never asked you know, condola, what works for her, what doesn't work for her. You know, he just is like pushing through. I'm going to be a good dad. This is how I'm going to do it. This is my way. And then you have the kid and you do whatever you do. And then I pick him up, but I want to know everything and you need to tell me everything when I'm not there. And I think that like, this is, that episode was so hard to shoot um, for a lot of reasons. Um, it was very lonely to shoot that episode. I never felt so lonely on set before. And like, I, and I think, I hope anyway that it informed the work in some way because so much of that episode was Lawrence by himself. So there was like a four day period, five day period, maybe actually even like a three or four day period where I literally just shot by myself. And it was, and the crew is busy. They got jobs. Like they're trying to get the show, you know, they're trying to get a shot set up. Like they can't entertain me because I'm bored and I'm, I'm being by myself. So I literally was just sitting by myself with nobody to talk to. And you can only look at your phone so many times. You can only scroll through Instagram so many times or look at your phone so many times. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I think like in a lot of ways that really, for me, just really, I, I tried to use that to inform where Lawrence was in being lonely in San Francisco. And then this like, kind of crazy dream that he has that like Elijah potentially is going to come up there and like live with him maybe, or spend time with him as a baby. You know what I mean? Like not really thinking about like what that means. And he hasn't done the job for more than 48 hours at a time. So he has no idea what that means to do that for a full week. Right. Um, And then finally him and him and Condola have this blow up and, and because they're constantly butting heads because they're, they're doing it different ways and not talking to each other. And I'm not sure The very end of the episode, I'll just say, is like, obviously, you know, the, the bumpy flight, which makes him think, I think in that moment, he's like, yo, if this plane would have gone down, this is not how I would have wanted anyone to remember me. The conversation I had with Condola is not how I would have wanted to go out and not how I would have wanted this kid not been in my kid's life. And so I think that for him was enough to just be like, yo, I'm just willing to try whatever, whatever it takes for us to be in a good place. And then so you know, to see them come full circle and have that moment is is beautiful and so needed in the conversation because it's so missed and so many people go through that. And sometimes it takes months, sometimes it takes years. Some people don't get it, um, because they never get to have the conversation. And I think it's beautiful that Issa and Prentice and our writers gave space for that story uh in, in this season and in this show.
2: And that's I mean, look, I I love Lawrence. We're here to give Lawrence his roses, but you, let's not mince words. You put us on an emotional roller coaster for the last five seasons. It's been up and down. There's times when I want to be exactly like Lawrence. There's other times when when I'm when I'm too much like Lawrence because I've been that chump that has to pick somebody up from the airport and then you get back home and then they break up with you. So I've I've lived some of that life, and to see it all come to an end, the the final episode of Insecure premieres on HBO. December 26th, obviously Boxing Day in Canada. It's the day after Christmas. So it's going to be a really uh, tough Sunday for me because my Washington football team plays Dallas in Dallas. That's going to be a tough game. Even if we win, it's going to be emotionally exhausting. Then we got the Insecure series finale. On December 26th, Top Gun Maverick is going to be in next year's summertime. And it's just it, it's been a pleasure having you here, Jay. I, I know you, you're, you're a busy guy. You got a lot to do. Uh, he's Jay Ellis. Um, again, Insecure. The, season, the, the series finale is December 26th on HBO, Top Gun Maverick, and it is next summer. And of course talking man on fire with him. Jay, it was a pleasure having you on the show. We're both Ellis's. I'm sure I'll see you at the reunions, but until then, thank you so much for joining us here on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Yeah,
3: thanks for having me, guys.
2: That was such a fun interview talking really all things in the world of entertainment with Jay Ellis. Sharonda, I didn't get a chance to ask him for a streaming recommendation. I imagine he might say Top Gun. I don't know. But I'll ask you because it's it's been such a pleasure getting to catch up with Sharonda Williams as well. Again, pay her weight is is her handle. That's uh, that's one of your many endeavors. You remember so many different critics associations. So I know it's going to be that busy time of the year for you as well. What is something that you caught in 2021 that you're like, oh, that's what everybody needs? To be watching.
0: Well, you know, I like to. I'm trying to decompress from all of the award screenings. So right now, what I'm actually watching <laughs> as a, uh, you know, a palate cleanser, I'm actually watching Dem- Demon Slayer, which is now yeah. in its season. I'm watching that, but also too, I do want to recommend a show called Alcapoco, which comes on Apple TV Plus, and also Swagger. If you loved Ted Lasso, you would really love Alcapoco, but Swagger is also a fun um, drama that is executive executive produced by Kevin Durant. I'm loosely based on his life. Um, I really think that you guys should check it out. But yes, Demon Slayer, that's that's where is at for me right now? That's how I spend my nights before I go to bed slaying demons.
2: (laughs) And your dreams are good, bad.
0: Surprisingly, they're actually good. Surprisingly, I try to do something light. I know we're slaying demons, but it's still lighthearted at times. It's still, That's, you know, it's inspirational. It's an inspirational show. Seriously, it is a very inspirational show. I'm just saying. All
2: right. All right. I'll take you up on Demon Slayer, but I'm definitely watching Swagger because, again, I've been, I, I, when I heard the project was announced, it was with Kevin Durant. I was like, yeah, you, you had me at Kevin. You sold me with Durant. So I'm in there. I'll also throw in because we were talking about Insecure. I also, there's another HBO show called, it it surprises some people, some of the shows that I really get invested into. We're Here is currently, and I think it's third season on HBO, and it is just, it's just such a beacon of positivity in a dark world. It is so much fun. If you don't know what We're Here is, don't 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 even, I'm not even going to describe to you what it is. Just go put on We're Here, get through an episode. You're not going to regret it. You're going to feel better about yourself and about your life. And you're going to want to hug every one of your friends and make a bunch of phone calls and text to people. So check out We're Here. Um, Sharonda, it, it's, I, I'd love to have you back soon to talk about a movie that maybe you feel passionately about that somehow was wronged on the tomato meter. Uh, again, everybody can find you at Pay or Wait. Anything else uh, coming up that, that we can check you out on that you wanted to mention before we say goodnight here?
0: No, just tune in to my weekly Insecure Recaps every Sunday. We're going to... We have two more episodes left. We're going to get through this together with the tissues and the tears. Um, But yeah, just watch my YouTube channel for upcoming movie and TV show reviews.
2: God, the, the, just from the end of season four to the beginning of season five, where... Lawrence and and Issa were and where they left it off. Issa finally taking a big step at the beginning of season five and where we've gone from there. It's a lot to digest. So I'm definitely going to be checking that out as well after I see the season and the series finale on December 26th. You can email us anytime here. It's rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. We read emails on the air a fair amount of times. We love your movie recommendations, your thoughts on the show, what you want to see from us in 2022. And next week, it's our final episode of the year, and who better to break down The Matrix and all thing The Matrix sees than Winston A. Marshall is going to be our very special guest here. I know Winston is definitely an enjoyer of the red pill, we'll say. And so I'm going to spit out the blue pill, and I'm going to take the red pill and go down the rabbit hole with Winston one more time. That's next week on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong for the great Sharonda Williams, our esteemed engineer, Brian Perez, producer Lucy, and Jay Ellis. I am Mark Ellis, possibly related, and we'll see you next week right here on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong.